welcome. It's Anthony J. Resta here with Studio Secrets A to Z, and we're here again with Brian Lucy for the second part of his two-part uh, interview, and I'm just thrilled we had a lot of uh, input and feedback from last time, and we barely scratched the surface, and this time I'm prepared with some questions that are going to keep things concise and moving on, so let's jump right in. Hey, Brian. All right organized and efficient i just woke up let's do it okay well one of the things i wanted to start off about is like i'm just in general a lot of people don't really even understand exactly what mastering is really i mean you know there's different levels of understanding but i wanted to kind of go back to my when i was in my 20s and i I first you know got to work with a you know a world-class mastering engineer i i realized very young that you know when somebody has 20 or 30 years of experience and all the gear and all that it just there's something that you guys do that it's kind of, it's like voodoo. It's like you can't really put it into words. But anyway, I want to get that across to a lot of young people. Uh, somebody just uh, came to me the other day and said, I'll master your song for $50. Give me a chance. Give me a chance. And it's just like, I, it's just, I, I don't want to be the, you know, the grumpy old guy saying, you know, like you can't do it. But, you know, I felt that way when I was younger. So like I'm, I'm saying like if I felt that way when I was 25, then I have the, I can I have the honor to st- still stay with it. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the experiences I've had with sending you things. Um, a lot of times over the years, I've worked with, I won't use names because this is your podcast, it's about you, but a lot of top people in the industry, almost, I don't know, eight or ten of the, the best. And I, I found two things. Um, you know, a lot of times for years, I really preferred the unmastered version. I mean, part of that is demoitis and getting used to the way it sounds in your room and stuff. But the other part of it is, certain frequencies that I will call like a smiley curve or whatever, where they suck out some of what I refer to as the good mud. Um, and, and you're the only mastering engineer really that I've been able to feel like, oh, wow, every time and consistently, 100% of the time, I like the mastered version better than the unmastered version. And that's there's really nobody else that that's been the case. There's always been you know ups and downs. So I want you to just go into a little bit about you know how you get to the level um required to 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 do things at your level you know okay well thank you for the compliment that's a big question yeah i know uh, big answer in parts i'll try to make them concise i mean the first thing is our experience is not uncommon for me but it's not always that way so i mean there is a revision process that is common with everyone even if somebody is really really good and really credentialed and has a special touch um and so that's that's important to say. It's like, yeah. you know, I'm not I'm not a, a a one trick pony. Like if you came back and said, "Oh, we wanted this thing different," I'd be happy to do that. So uh, it's not unusual your experience, but it's not always the case. Okay. So the second thing is kind of what is mastering from the standpoint of if you're a younger person and you're looking at it in a DIY world. Well, look, I love DIY. I mean, I'm self taught at mastering just like I was self-taught at mixing, just like I was self-taught at tracking, just like I was self-taught as a musician. And I was started playing, you know, guitar when I was 11 and I was a pro in New York City at 18. So I have a track record of being confident with my ability to self-teach. Therefore, I would be a total hypocrite to tell anyone to not go for it. Yep. Having, having said that, having said that, you know, I didn't start mastering until I was in my 30s. I'm 55. And everything I did before then was really crucial. So to me, I can only speak of my experience and my perspective. 
you know, mastering is not just level the frequencies and make it louder. That's a very, you know, sad and rude uh, description of the craft, but an understandable one if you don't have a, a, a lot of experience. To me, it's like you have to know all the steps. You know, I, I wrote music, recorded music, tracked, mixed music, did everything with music, you know, struggled with, you know, where to put the overhead and the kick drum and what are the different mics and all the, all the compression techniques and did all those things. So when I got to mastering, I can immediately hear that in what people are doing. Like I, I can hear what's going on. And so what I'm doing when I listen isn't, you know, balancing and leveling and all that. It's enhancing based on my interpretation of their intentions. I see. So the interpretation of intentions is the part that is the experience part in other phases of production. How could I interpret your intentions in any way, shape, or form if I'm just, you know, like 25 and have had a garage band and now I have Pro Tools and a bunch of plugins? Like, you, you just can't do it. And I don't mean to be rude, but you can't do yeah, it. Yeah. Like, you can't do it. Not because you're not capable someday, but you're just not there. So, one component of it is, is just having the experience with all the other phases. I see. Because in mastering, there's a fine line between too much and too little. That's for sure. It, too little it's at times um i mean it's kind of worthless i mean there's there's a myth that's worth mentioning top mastering engineers get great mixes and do very little that that's actually the opposite i spend the most time on some of the best mixes i mean the i don't know if i mentioned it last week but the recently did uh, recently now six months ago but michael buble record with you know, four mixers and four producers and, and 16 songs and every style. And it took months, not every day, but it took months because there was so much there. And when music is so dense and complex and there's so much going on with this is an orchestra and this is a pop song done in the box and this is a jazz trio and this has a choir and this is just a solo vocal. When there's all that and you're putting all that together, you really have to be respectful, but also you have to go for it. You know, my, my job has always been to go for it. People like it when I go for it. So knowing what go for it looks like and knowing what respectful looks like, again, takes having done these other, you know, yeah. it's, it's a whole, it's, and you know, from my standpoint, you know, for me personally, I'm also very intuitive. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking about the artist. Like, is this a new artist with a single? Is this an, a global artist that has a follow-up record? And I have to be, thinking what's the critic think what's the audience think what's the what's the flow of this record from the last one like what's the world think you yeah. know because master it's between the world of what we thought we were going to make and the world of judgment and certainty and foreverness so so there's a whole lot of intuition involved for me personally and i can't say for everyone else but you know you're starting to get into what we're thinking about here we're thinking about enhancements of loved mixes don't do too much, don't do too little, which comes from experience. And the gear component is really important because in this era of DIY, it's really easy to be mediocre. It's really easy to be slightly above average. It's very difficult to be great, just like it's always been difficult to be great. And the gear component is a part of that. The monitoring component is a part of that. But, but mostly it all comes back to the engineer. You know, the engineer picks the gear. The engineer picks the monitoring. The engineer chooses wh how to turn the knobs and make the choices. And it always comes back to the engineer. But those other things are very important. 
Wow, that's that's a that's a lot to take in, but it makes it makes perfect sense to me. It's it just I mean you were really concise like answering like so much, uh, in, 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 you know, and I was just like wow, um, yeah, it's you know the, the, what there... grabbed me was for making judgments that are forever. I mean that that kind of that that kind of responsibility is like, I mean you must you actually think about that like probably you know daily. I mean it's like you know. You're, all day, every day, every client, every style. I mean, everybody's project is the most important thing. Everybody's project. I mean, look, mastering is this. Mastering is this. Why? Why? Why do you pay somebody? Why do you pay me something? Well, why not do it yourself? Why do you pay me versus someone else? Two reasons. One is, you have ten seconds with most people. That's it. Yep. Maybe thirty, maybe one, maybe five, maybe ten, maybe twenty. You, you have this window of a first impression. Next of all. You want to listen to this thing in 5, 10, 20 years and be happy with it. There you go. First impressions and timeless satisfaction, that's what you're paying for. Now, the first impression part is literally your calling card. Like all the work you've done up to mastering doesn't mean a fucking thing if the mastering doesn't take it further and give it its best shot in a competitive world. I mean, we are competing against a million songs a day, folks. It's the internet. So you're competing against the recorded history of music. Yeah. Can you do it yourself? Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course you can. But you're competing against the recorded history of music, including a 20-year experience tracking person, a 25-year experience mixing person, a 30-year experience mastering person. You are competing against that 80 years of talented people, not just years in terms of numbers, but years in terms of their talent. And talent is something that you know, you're born with, but it can also be evolved. You can develop your talent by practicing your listening skill, by critically listening, by A-being constantly. A-B everything. A-B constantly. Because your frame of reference is your most important tool in music production. Frame of reference is what do I have and what's this other thing? Yeah. Like go to buy something, frame of reference. What do I have? I don't like it. Why don't I like it? Okay, what's this other thing? Oh, I like that. So comparison is is not particularly a creative skill. It's the other side of the brain. But comparison is key in music production. What is this and what is that? And how are they objectively different? Now, subjectively, that's a different world. That's art and enjoyment. But there is a B listening skill that you can do, which furthers your quote unquote talent. You know, talent and sensitivity. And, you know, that kind of stuff is, is kind of genetic, but we can enhance our talent and sensitivity by intentional A-B listening. That's great advice. And I don't think in the course of my career, you know, which is coming into three decades, I don't think I've done nearly enough A-B listening. I think I, I, I uh, yeah, crawl up my own, you know, stuff. Well, to be fair, it's not necessarily your job. That's why yeah. you have yeah. production part. Yeah. You know, like your, your yeah. job is a creator. Yeah. So, you know, creators create, you know, some of my clients are more technical, some are more creative, but creators create, you know, they just boom, 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 crank it out. So the engineering job is, is a more balanced. It's a right brain, left brain, kind sure. of 50, 50, particularly mastering. It's got to be a 50, 50 thing in terms of the right, left brain. I think when you say first impression and timeless satisfaction, I mean, those two components alone are, are really like everything i mean if you think about it it's like that's everything um that's a great way to put it the the idea of like another important thing is you know respectfully um i can make everything better that you think is great respectfully so i i work for people all over the world many of them the top 
top people in the world. Why does a top, top person pay me my, you know, my actual major label, major artist rate, no discount? Why does it, why do I get my rate from the best people in the world? Because they hear an enhancement. So if the best work in the world can be enhanced in a significant way where they'll pay a significant price for that because it's really valuable to them, then what do you think can happen with your mix that, by the way, you're in love with because your frame of reference is limited. Right. In other words, being in love with your mix is great. That's a fantastic place. That's where you should be. But being in love with your mix doesn't mean that it can't be enhanced and shouldn't be in this competitive environment where you're competing against the recorded history of music. Yeah, that's, that's a powerful way to put it, you know? Incredible. We should be our mix. That's great. We're, we shouldn't be looking to mastering to fix it, you know? You know, basically people want to do you know, everything in the mix they possibly can to get it as far along towards their, you know, imagined goal as they can, except the overall volume. Mm -hmm. Don't, don't worry about that. everything else. Go for it. And then you should be happy with it. That's what we want, but that doesn't mean it can't go somewhere else. That's where, that's my job. Well, that's, that brings me to one of the other questions that, that I had put aside to, for today was what are some things that like, I don't want to say mistakes people make, but what are some miracles that, that are just not, uh, able to happen like in other words you know mastering can do this this and this what can it not do um well it, you know it can't make you happy on on something you didn't like in the first place so don't start with that yeah. you know if, if you don't like it going in you're not ready for mastering um you know it, it obviously can't do uh very you know crazy specific things with tracks but sometimes it can i mean if people are like hey can you change the kick bass relationship sure can you pop the vocal? Sure. Can you duck the vocal? Sure. You know, are there artifacts to that? Yes. But are they something I can do in a minimal way? Yeah, I can. Yeah. But it's always better to not do that. You you don't want to be in a position to be asking me to fix things. You want to be in a position of, I absolutely love this and I think it can't be better. Here, what can you do with it? Because I respect that my excitement is normal and natural but I don't know the, the recorded history of music as well as you do. And maybe I would get a leg up here and maybe my whole project would benefit if I give myself the best chance. So, so that when I look back in five and 10 and 20 years, I'm not like, Oh, I should have spent a couple hundred more bucks on that. You know, it's yeah, like, no, come that's, on. that's real. That's huge. It's a ridiculously small amount of money in mastering compared with, yeah. with what your potential opportunity uh, cost is or opportunity the, the loss. You know? Ab absolutely. Do you ever do you ever send things back to say, hey, look, you know, this is just printed too hot. I can't I can't do anything with this. You need to go back six or so many dB. I mean, yeah. Okay. So yeah, you're getting into that. So printing crazy hot with the limiter can go too far, but for some people, that's how they mix, right? So this is subjective. Okay. Uh, I ha I have to hear it, you know. And some people mixing through limiter. Or, hey, Chad Blake mixes through four limiters, you know, stacked. So mixing through limiter is a, is a common modern technique. I would never say it's a bad idea. It's just a question of degree. You know, if it's more about mindset. Like, if your mindset is, oh, fuck, it sucks, I'm going to nail this down myself, that's not where to go. If your mindset is, this is musical, and I like these four limiters on my two bus, which is Chad, who does some of the coolest mixes ever. Absolutely. Then then you do that, right? So if, if, if you have a musical mindset versus a fear or control mindset, that's where you want to be. I doubt Chad is like pummeling them, though. I mean, I, I, I would... I would. 
he can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some of the Black Key stuff I've done is is released lower than the mix came in. I would say, <laughs> but, but you know, it doesn't matter because because he has taste and skill and musicality. So it, these technical things. You know, we focus on them, but if you have taste, skill, experience, musicality, you you win every time. You know, but he did before we worked together. He said he had mastering engineers that would send it back, like, "Hey, I can't deal with this." Yeah. And, and actually, interesting anecdote on the first record we did together, Black Keys Brothers. He said to me, "If these are too hot, let me know, and I'll send you some other ones." And I'd never worked them. I knew his work, yeah. uh, of course, and loved his work, and. I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> we've never worked together. At the time, I didn't have, that's like 2009, I didn't have the credits I have now. And, he, and, he's, and he's so sweet and humble and, and you know, completely egoless. And he's like, hey, if you want me to change this for you, let me know. Because he had gotten that feedback from other mastering people. And I said, well, in principle, that makes no sense. You love it. Pat and Dan love it. I'm good. But I'll listen and I'll let you know. And he's like, yeah, well, let me just send you the, like a db down yeah. db one db that was it limiter down one db well one of his four limiters <laughs> so he sends everything one db down and i you know my intuition is like eh, no but i'm gonna listen all right i'm gonna give it a full ab uh, objective no prejudice and i listen and what i found was very informative all the one db down mixes we're not as good. Wow. Why? Because it's not, it's not how he made it. He made it there and then he moved it. It's like, well, it fell apart. Okay. You yeah. know, because when something is that smashed, it's that refined, right? It's, it's, it's refined. And so the fact that he was being technical for a second because other mastering people had said, Hey, can you turn that down? It didn't work. And I was like, no, let's go with, let's go with the A pile with the A pile. And that's what we did, you know? I mean that's this is a topic in itself and it's a link could be a lengthy one but I I have to say I mean that record brothers is is I mean it it that's like a revolutionary you know thing it's like it, it's like I mean what did it feel like to be a part of something that I mean it's it just was massive in such a big way it's just um I don't know I I mean I, I'm sure it opened doors for you but besides that just the sound of it Tell us a little bit about like what it was like, um, you know, hearing that music for the first time and then, you know, interpreting it um, in the way that you interpreted it and, and what you kind of brought to the, the picture. Well, it, it was an interesting era for me. I'd come out of a long relationship. I was actually quite depressed. I got the call from management and I'd been working with Dan for a couple of years on other projects. And uh, they said, you know, are you available in like three weeks to do this record? And I said, yeah, sure. Great. And so. At a kind of a low point, I get this record. I just moved to a new studio. I was really, I was in there one day <laughs> and I started working on the record. And that was tricky. Um, and the more I worked on it, I, I just felt like this is a timeless classic. Like this is going to win a Grammy. This is going to be great in 30 years. And I was just really enjoying it. And so, you know, wow. I didn't, I didn't know if that would happen, but my, my, you know, again, my sense of the recorded history of music, right? Yeah. I was like, the Pantheon, this is a fucking winner, right? And so let me make sure that I, you know, enhance it right and, and do the right thing. And and so, so yeah, so by the time I sent it off, I was like, this is an amazing record. I love it. And, and then you never know, right? You never know. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I did Chet Faker's first record, Built on Glass. 
And that was an interesting thing because it was this teeny little label in Australia. I'd never heard of Chet Faker. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know he was a DJ who sang No Diggity Cover the Blue Up and people were waiting for this record. I thought, oh, teeny little label, what an amazing record. You know, I said to someone at the time who came by the studio, I'm like, it's a shame no one will ever hear this <laughs> because this is, this is like the most amazing thing I've heard in such a long time. And of course, lots of people have heard it. So that, you know, I, I can, I can tell, you know, I can tell when these things are special and the Black Keys record was also special because the band was in a different place than they are now. They were, they were, they were coming up, you know, and they were being, you know, very sort of just doing everything right. You know, and, and it was kind of a, a moment where they opened up to production. They'd never done production and they had just opened up to licensing. They'd never done licensing. And so they had Danger Mouse in there and and they had all these people wanting to license. And it just it was a it was a, a moment where all sorts of factors came together. It was also during the recession where something that was kind of Americana, sort of bluesy, sort of soulful was really in, in the moment of the times. You know, it was. Um, it was a, it was kind of a low feeling. It wasn't low like after 9/11 when Coldplay came in. That was a that was a perfect record. The Coldplay first record was the perfect record for that moment. But the Brothers record, <clears throat> pardon me, was a perfect record for that <clears throat> moment and that moment in time. You know, so a lot of things came together there, and it's you know very fortunate to be part of that team. Well, when I first heard that, it was like it's you know very rarely do you hear something go what the. You know, is that, you know, it's like, I mean, like when I first, like I'm dating myself now, but when I first heard the the first Van Halen record, uh, somebody played me a cassette before it was actually released. And I, and it was like the same feeling, like, what the is that? You know, it's like, you know, it's just, it's a rare feeling to get. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw Paul McCartney on TV the other day talking about when he first, they said, who do you think is the best guitarist? And he said, Jimi Hendrix. And <clears throat> when he saw Jimi in London, it was this little club that he would go to and the first night, no one was there, and he was there, and he was like, "What the hell?" And then the next night, everybody was there. <laughs> like all, all of the what we consider classic rock London people were all there the next night. You know, crazy. Uh, yeah, I mean, the Brothers' record to me, I mean, a, a tremendous tracking by a great tracking engineer, uh, tremendous mixing. Um, of course, I'm I'm happy with what I did, and but then the business part was there, and the and the world was there in terms of the recession and their integrity as artists and their development was there they were they were just starting to peak after uh, you know nine years or whatever of you know living in the van and doing a doing a great job of developing their their craft you know wow yeah just i, I have the t-shirt still <laughs> you know it's just incredible you have to remember the moment it was the recession yep so something kind of organic and authentic and american was an up you know soul music goes down to come up right so we were down and it, and it came up you know it was it was just perfect timing all around but 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 it'd be it would be a great record in any era it's it pushes boundaries like in every in especially in the sonic realm i mean it's 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 pushing boundaries um you know it's like the, just that the sound of that was like i mean i guess there might have been things that harkened back to like you know early blues records or whatever but it was like on steroids you know so it's like you're taking like an old aesthetic yeah yeah well that, that that's what they were going for i mean they they went down to muscle shoals and everything was kind of broken so they brought in their own stuff and recorded it to radar <clears throat> and then you know there was very few tracks um i forget this number uh, don't quote me uh, yeah. internet but i think maybe no more than 12 or 15 mono tracks per song yeah that's amazing 
so Chad had a big canvas and then he could really, he could just do his beautiful thing. Incredible. And that, that's, yeah, it was beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. That's, that's another topic that I've, you know, I've gotten into things recently where, you know, I've been a sort of a, a producer of excess, like, you know, over different periods of my career. And I, I go in and out of like less is more and more is less. But, uh, you know, I found recently, you know, on, on a few occasions when I, when there's a lot less coming through the, um, the the mix bus there's a seems to be a tendency for it to to be bigger before you 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 it's like you're not trying to cram so much through the pipeline is that is there some truth to that yeah i mean that kind of a, a common thought i'm having when i hear things and i'm i'm fortunate to hear at least 2000 new songs a year so a common thought that i hear um in my head is like you know i wonder what this would be like if they did less yeah you know so so like again it's very easy in this era to be average or above average a little bit but it's basically mediocre because we have all the technology and we're sort of technologically driven you know we're not like band in a room and all the organic things which require a whole you know different skill set so so you know what i'm encouraging people to do a lot whether it be in the vocal to make a more natural vocal delivery uh well i, I shouldn't say i'm encouraging i mean in my, in my head i'm wishing yeah, <laughs> I was very few people would ask me for production advice and I probably wouldn't give it. I'd say, what do you think is best? But, but in my head, I'm like, gee, I wonder what that would be like if you did less, you know, if you pulled things out, if you created more space, uh, if you, if you, if you build it up big and then pulled things out to see what was the minimum that you could get away with and still be in. That's, that's true. And the other thing I think today is it's very easy to put off making decisions when you're making records. And like when I grew up, I, you know, we worked on 24 track analog uh, for a number of years, like 10 or 15 years. And you, you had your time code and you had, had your 23 tracks and, you know, you could run a couple of virtual things, but you know, you had to make decisions every step of the way. Okay. So, and what I find today is like, uh, you know, we do a lot of fix and mix and post-production and like somebody sent me something last night, I had to put percussion on something for somebody and there was over 200 tracks and they want me to add percussion. And I'm like, it's just like it's an enormous undertaking just to figure out what's really going on so that you know what to add. Yeah, know? I mean, I think it's a good it's a good point for people who are new to this to kind of think about the physics of what makes music clear and punchy and and the physics is really less is more. Like if if you just had a three-track record, like for example, Miles Davis Kind of Blue, which is a three-track tape record where they would wow. they stack mics on one track stack some mics on another that ends up being panned left center right like full lcr that's the biggest sounding punchiest clearest record you can have because the way that stereo works you know the center image is 50 50 volume on right and left the left is full left the right is full right when we pan things between full left and center we we spread them in a different percentage not 50-50, which puts it center image, right? We, we spread them, you know, 90, 10, 80, 20, 70, 30, and it gives this perception of movement across the stereo field. The trick of that is that that, that, that works differently in every room, and it is creating phase issues. Uh, uh, it, it, it is creating clarity issues as it bounces around in rooms. So if you start with that premise, that that three tracks is the biggest thing you can do, then when you get into like, well, I'm going to put five mics on this and two mics on this and stereo everything, it's like you're, you're, you've got all sorts of comb filtering things and just like electrically speaking, it's a fucking mess. Sure, sure. No, I, I, I so, sense that. So when people 
send something to you, what would be nice would be if they would go through it after they've done 200 tracks, you know, pick the mono version of the stereo in every case, send everything in mono, pick the best version of everything in every case, send you the simple thing. But the issue there, again, going back to experience, is people aren't really trusting what they hear. So they're they're working from a fear mindset of, well, I just have to make sure and capture everything as if as if capture as if we're like catching cats, yeah. you know, like we're not we're not capturing sound. We're creating a recording. So what you came up doing in the back in the day would be great for people to do now, which is like, oh, I love this vocal. I'm going to print it with all the things on it. I love this drum kit with, you know, uh, a combination of in the box and some samples and then oh i had my buddy put a snare on it or whatever like commit to things is always good because then you're you're building it but in order to build it again you have to have a vision and to have a vision you have to have overview and to have overview you have to have some experience so it's very easy to feel very competent recording 200 tracks but but that results in mediocrity unless someone like you gets involved and starts editing it's thinning it out do you ever well, run into a situation now today with this sort of mindset that um people will say hey um will you master stems like if i give you like six pair pairs yeah i don't do stems mm-hmm. uh, my thing is that uh you know i encourage people to be better and i do my best to teach what i believe are the ideas that will make people better and part of being better is being more confident uh, stems comes from a, a lack of confidence. And, um, and the other thing is, you know, music works when it has a singular clarity, you know, vocal music, uh, yeah. it has to have a sort of a, almost, a you know, a benevolent dictatorship kind of singularity to it. It can't be democracy. Democracy doesn't work in music production. So, you know, stems is like basically someone saying, I don't have a clear vision of what I'm doing. Yeah, so they're not being willing to commit. I don't have a vision of it. I can't enhance that, right? I'm I'm not interested in getting in the middle of your psychological dilemma. (laughs) Right? If you look at it like that, yeah. Yeah, I'm interested in helping you solve your dilemma so that you can have clarity and confidence to make a commitment. And, and, And it's better to make a commitment than to be... Like, oh, well, you have more experience than me and you should take over because because nobody there is no perfect mix. See, that 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 all stems from this false notion of there is a perfect mix that doesn't exist. There are mixed greater or lesser degrees of vision and clarity that represent this artist, this story in this amount of time. That's it. And, And if you're mixing on like the world's worst speakers in the world's worst room, but you have those three things. I can work with that. You know, there was a guy, Pete Croissant, in in uh, Bristol, I think it was, in, in the UK back in like 2004 or five, And he sent me this record that was like literally the darkest, muddiest thing I'd ever heard. And I went, you know, crazy EQing it. And out came the most beautiful record that I heard that whole year. Wow. Making was there. The monitoring wasn't there. So someone could listen to it without my mindset and someone could be like, Oh, those are terrible mixes. No, actually those were mixes done beautifully in an environment that wasn't a good uh, environment because he didn't, he just didn't know, but he had all the other skills. He had the clarity, he had the commitment, he had the musicality, he had the taste. It was all built in this record. It just had to be, you know, peeled, peeled back from the over viewing. 
and it was a beautiful record. You know, it's it's just a wealth of information in in these discussions, and it's it's it's. I think these our listeners are going to be just really taking so much away from this. I I had a meeting with somebody, a, a young girl, USC student, the other day, and she played me some brilliant songs, and I heard your voice in my head when I was listening to her mix, and like she was doing these. Uh, ping pong things and she does, didn't understand the concept of like what a, a send and return is on a lead vocal so the lead vocal was just like music in a blender <laughs> and I was like I heard your voice and I said music in a blender <laughs> I heard your voice in my head yeah. and I I, I, I I spent an hour with her and just showed her exactly what she needs to do like you know bring up the, the vocal on a mono you know in one place that doesn't go away and then I showed her what you know Augs returns were and, and she was just so thrilled you know it wasn't even supposed to be part of the meeting it was supposed to be a sales meeting but it's yeah. It's wonderful what you do and the educational aspect of what you do. Uh, we oh, well, appreciate it. I, yeah, I, I, you know, at this at this point, it's a it's a goal for me to just help people to you know to be there, you know, meet their potential or you know exceed what they think their potential might be. I mean, doing simple well is very difficult, you know. Yeah. Um, and in the world we're in, like like some examples we've talked about with over tracking or you know over complexity or you know, just too much stuff, you know, like that, that makes things mediocrely, professionally acceptable, like, but nobody cares about that, really. It's not, it's not going to make the impact, you know, we have to, we have to trust, well, well, we have to learn to trust ourselves, right? We have to learn to trust ourselves. Now, some people do it naturally, but most people, I would say, learn to trust themselves. Mm -hmm. um, better to be big and bold than to be safe, you know? I agree um, with that. And, and, and if you can make simple interesting, you're, you're, you're way ahead. You know, basically, to me, a lot of things come down to, and this is, you know, sort of a, a different way to look at it, but it comes down to our motivation. Do we have a loving motivation or a fearful motivation, right? Yep. Do I love the way that sounds or am I afraid that it's not this or that, you know? Do I, do I, do I love what I'm doing here? Like, does this bring me alive? Does this resonate with me? Or am I afraid I don't want to, afraid I, you know, I have the internet in my head, I must release that minus 14 loves, which by the way is bullshit, we can talk about that. Like, there's all sorts of technical thoughts that go in people's heads, and, and you know, this is an era of, you know, information, it's the information age, or what I, what I call the war. So there's information everywhere, and a lot of that information is put out, why? To make somebody money. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. To make the person who's talking money. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I make my money mastering. You know, when I'm talking to people, I'm like, I, I'm trying to give them better information in a world of a lot of bullshit. So, yeah. you know, the, 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 it's just easy to get caught up in fear because there's so much information. A ton of it is conflicting. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's like, that's not going to make a good, tasteful, interesting, brave, cool record. That's what everybody wants to do. That's they the want to make yeah, best interesting, advice. Yeah. tasteful record. That's, that's what I what say to people. I say, do you want to blend in or do you want to stand out? I mean, that's the thing. If you go on TikTok, you can listen to like, say, 20 pop things in a row, thumbing through them. And it's like the, they all, I mean, it's the chopped up porpoise flying or vocal flying around in the you know the tuned 808s and sure that there's a, an art to that and that can be done really well but you know for me I, it's like my whole career has been based on trying to to make art that 
kind of like makes you go, oh, what's that? It's standing out more than blending in. So I, I know that's a fine line. It's a, it's a fine line. I think we, I feel like we talked about this last yeah, time. We but I can't remember. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. Fine line. Like, you know, there, what, if you want to talk about what makes people popular, I think we hit on it. First of all, it has to be authentic. Yeah. It has to be authentic and brave. So it can't be follow the leader unless you're making commercial music like for ESPN. Yeah. But if it's, if it's original music, it's got to be authentic. And then it's a question of, it's got to reference things that people know, but it can't be too much of that or it's boring. Yeah. And it has to be interesting and different, but it can't be too much of that or it's weird. Yeah. So line between boring and weird that, that we're looking for. But before we cross into that part of it, we've got to start with what's authentic, which gets back to my love and fear thing. If you love what you're doing, commit to that, print that. That's the thing you, that saves you time later. The idea that you're going to sit down on some given day and take 200 tracks that are very neutrally sort of, uh, you know, sort of basically put in, and then you're going to add all this stuff in mixing is absurd. Yeah. It's absurd. No, no mixer could do that. Like not even the best mixer ever. You're asking too much of yourself by that approach. So the more that you can commit, then you're building the project as it goes. But again, that requires a bit of overview and the overview is the tough part because that, that just comes with experience. And mm -hmm. I get that. I'm passionate to that, that difficulty. You know, someone's like, you know, 15, 17, 20, 25, 30 years old and they're, and they're being safe. Like I get that you're being safe, but do what you can to commit and be less safe. And that starts with th thinking in your mind, what are we going for here? That's you know, what do we, what? Are, yeah, it's wonderful. Wonderful. Um, you know, there was a Berkeley professor that, um, told Cariotti, his name's Carl Beatty. And he said, and this is something I keep in the back of my mind because I have a tendency to like say I'm doing guitar overdub and I got an, I'm, I'm looking for the perfect signature line for the intro. It's like there's a part of me that wants to do 50 tracks and stumble across the, the most brilliant one ever, you know. But then as I got older and more experienced, I realized, you know, after five or so, the, the chances of anything being better are pretty rare. I'm, I'm big on the three take rule, you know, like do three vocals, comp them later, you know, yeah. three I'm big on three because, you know, the way I explain it is, is kind of a, like a 90% point. You know, if, if you get any particular part of the process, if we break music production into the thousand steps, any one of those thousand steps, you could get bogged down in it yeah. and, and get it to like a totally arbitrary number here, 90% of what your imaginary best is. Like, that's what I call sufficiency. And at sufficiency, you're kind of excited. And you're like, well, I could work on it more. And then the fear can creep in. Should I work on it? Maybe <laughs> wow. I could do more. And if you cannot go there, yeah. then what you have instead of fear, you have momentum. Yeah. So momentum from step one goes to step two. And then you get to 90%. You're like, uh, it's pretty cool. I like it, but I could do more. And if you stop, you, you, you eliminate the fear. You stay in the world of momentum. And then step by step by step, momentum builds. And then at the end, you know, when we started A and we imagined Z, that's fine. But when we get from A to B, we're different and Z can look different. And in a process of momentum, Z is way better than we thought it was when we were at A. Yeah. That, that's what we're going for. We're going for that process of, you know, what, what I like to call rolling the rock downhill. Yeah. You know, we want to get momentum with every step, every step, every step. Here's a, here's a germ of a, of a thought for a lyric. Let's turn it into a, a verse. Okay, let's have a hook. Okay, let's have a bridge. Let's arrange. Let's produce. Let's mix. Let's master. If all of those steps and all the sub-steps have momentum without so much fear, but more of like enthusiasm, 
at the end of the record, it's better than we thought it could ever be. It's greater than the sum of the parts. That's the joy. That kind of process. That's the joy, and that's that's the the best possible, you know, advice you could give anyone. And I think it's a it's a good place for us to jump off today. And um, it's been wonderful. Um, yeah, that's like that's that sums so much up. I mean, and it's funny the way I'm going to save this and, and go back and listen to it, obviously, because we always do that. But you know, what you're saying applies to not just music production; it's almost in anything in your life that you want to achieve. Um, you know, I think you, you're, you're quite a philosopher. I think you had some philosophy background or something uh, you were saying. Well, <laughs> funny story. <clears throat> uh, everybody makes mistakes. I, I didn't turn on my my amazing microphone chain, so all we have is what you have. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. We've got it. <laughs> so, yeah, I've got a I've got a Flea Forty Seven here going into an Avita MA Five. Inward uh, optical into a retro. Oh my into goodness! Microsonics converter. But I was busy having my breakfast of pop tarts. Yeah, that happens. And, that, that's and the universe. That happens. So there you go. That's the universe. Everybody's human. Everybody makes mistakes. That's all that's, good. That's the, that's the right perfect there. way to, to end our podcast. That's wonderful. There you go. I yeah, it's so great, man. We'll do this again in the future. I mean, there's a million things. Uh, you're you're such a deep, interesting person. It's really great to to get to know you. Thank you so for coming. Well, you know, you're here for decades by yourself mastering music. You've got time to think these things over. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful, Brian. We'll be in touch soon. I got some stuff to send you, too. All right. Talk to you soon. All Happy right, to do this. Hope it helps. Okay. Awesome. Bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.